Hello and welcome to The Jewelarian, the podcast for those who love jewels and their stories. With me, Josie Goodbody, jewellery historian and author of the Jemima Fox mystery series, which have just been optioned for adaption to the screen. Hi everyone, today I am talking across the pond to Dr Sharon Novak, who is the most funny jewellery people on Instagram. She makes me laugh every time she posts anything. On a serious note, she is a gemologist. She is a curator of impeccable collections and a jewellery advisor. Talking to me very early in the morning in America. Been up for hours. And I have to say, the funniest gemologist feels a little bit like the hottest prison guard. I'm not really sure. (laughs) I meant like the most brilliant, like, it's funny. It's fun to be funny, right? I would like to be introduced as the hottest prison guard, actually. I think it's kind of slick. (laughs) Can you imagine if I were actually running security? I'm five foot nothing. Please be intimidated. She's just been fired. She's been fired. Find me and fear. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I'm sure being as tiny security guard is quite great because you can like sneak in. Um, I have to tell you, one of my security guards in the past is an exceptionally petite, very beautiful woman who is trained to identify all markers of theft and she's trained to to handle it. So even though she fits in unobtrusively to a cocktail party, she's actually casing the whole thing and in charge of it. So it actually works very well. My God, I'm really scared about coming to a cocktail party in the States. Although I, I used to say to people, oh my God, my surname, Miss Goodbody, I'm a Bond girl. I can clearly true. be a Bond girl. People said, but you talk too much. No one would believe you. You're pretty. Good work. Thank you. That's really kind you say that. What? I thought I might change my name to Iona Goodbody. Oh, I'm totally bad. Goodbody. I know. Bad. Can you imagine? Iona. Or I am. Yeah. I am. Yeah, I'm in. I anyway, accept. come on, let's be serious. Right, okay. Sharon. Yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your incredible career and how you <laughs> how you kind of got into what you do? I um I have only ever worked on luxury goods and for a very specific reason, which is that they are for me the perfect interaction of psychology and heritage and craft. So we're never going to be looking for a luxury coat because we're just cold, right? There's something intrinsic about wanting the unique and the special. And in jewelry, what I love about it is that especially high jewelry ties us across all cultures, across all time. There is something innate in the human condition to want to seek out the beautiful and special and to signal with it, either belonging to a group or standing out. But there's all those wonderful, fascinating reasons why. So I started my career as an academic. I um, did my PhD in operations management and econometrics at MIT. And my focus was on the interaction of design and sourcing in luxury goods. And I began working with different luxury goods companies at that point, all the way through my my teaching career. And then I transitioned into being full-time in-house in um, companies that had a variety of products. So throughout my career, I've been um, an executive vice president, COO president, and co-founder across shoes, handbags, ready to wear and bridal, and then finally also fine jewelry. And the reason I transitioned into high jewelry exclusively is that you have an opportunity, I think, to really speak to 
timeless heritage products. We don't have the kind of timeline with collections and seasons that you face in, let's say, ready-to-wear fashion. So you have the opportunity to go much deeper and for a much longer time horizon to create something really unique and special. So that brought me here. I completely agree with you. I remember when I was at Graf and I asked my journalists, what collection is this? And I would go to Lawrence Graf and I would say to him, what will you call this collection? Or is there a collection that we can do for this story? And he said, my jewelry isn't about a collection. It's forever. Jewelry doesn't necessarily adhere to collections. And I think that is what's incredibly different with jewelry to fashion is, you know, people always laugh about someone wearing something out of fashion. And when it's gone out of fashion, you know, you, you see it being resold. But jewelry doesn't have that. I mean, and fashion comes back and back and, you know, you see it all the time. But I think particularly with jewellery, you know, you don't just suddenly think, oh, actually, you know, that amazing, beautiful Asprey daisy ring that I was given this this spring. Of course I can wear it again. It's never going to go out of fashion, which I think it, it is wonderful about jewellery. It's timeless. Whatever it is, it's timeless. And in particular for me, I, I love gemstones. So the idea that the earth produces this miracle. Oh my God, me too. 3.5 billion years old and you get to wear it on your body and, and interact with its energy. It's wonderful. It's always, always interesting. I find that absolutely unbelievable. Yesterday, I went with my husband to um, Bath, which is near where we live. And um and and I and we went into Pandora and they've just started doing lab grown diamonds. And I said, you know, these are lab grown. And he's like, what's that? And he's like, oh, so they're just like diamonds. And I was like, and I'm not saying anything wrong about lab grown. I think everything has its place. But for me personally, and I do also love custom jewelry, so I'm sounding a bit hypocritical. But for me personally, if I have a gemstone, the fact that it was born a billion years ago that's made into this beautiful, extraordinary, the fire inside it. The only thing I would say about lab-grown diamonds, there's lots of reasons why someone might want to choose them, and I wouldn't judge them for that. But please don't do it, at least at this point in time, because you think they're more sustainable, because they are not. So the energy consumption and carbon emissions greatly exceeds that of newly mined stones. Leaving aside, of course, there's lots of other issues with newly mined stones. But if you want to use the term sustainability, you want to go a lot deeper and think through it. And it doesn't really apply to lab diamonds. And that's my only real concern. They are the same force applied to create carbon into diamonds. They are diamonds. But I agree with you. What I like about a natural stone, in addition to the idea that there was this weird occurrence where the temperature and pressure was just enough over Amazing. 5 to 3.5 billion years to make this come out the way it did, that alone is amazing. But a lab-grown diamond is not going to have the same trace elements and wonderful fingerprints inside of it that a stone that the earth produced will have. They'll have other things, but they'll be different. And that's how we identify them as lab versus a natural diamond. And personally, I love natural diamonds as I know you do. I do. And I thank you so much for saying that because that really has brought home to me how wonderful natural diamonds are and not just natural diamonds, but all natural gemstones. Anyway, um, I would like to talk to you about what you do now 
could you tell me a little bit about your creation of, of jewellery collections? Because that's a lot of what you do. And you have an amazing relationship with all the auction houses. So, you know, a lot of what I do is to work with private clients on building their own collections. And so it really depends on what you're going for. So first you want to start with, you know, what is your intention with this collection? Is this jewelry that you will be wearing, but you want it to appreciate and you want to hand it down? Is this for a specific purpose? Do you intend to sell it in a certain amount of time? Is it just as keepsakes? Are you particularly fascinated by an aspect of jewelry, be it, you know, very rare gemstones and you want a full collection of everything that's unusual or a house, you want to go deep into iconic elements of Van Cleef and Arpels or Cartier, etc. And then I make a really creepy Unabomber map where I map out all the elements and everything that needs to be considered. And I go and find it. So, you know, I've gone to meet with royal family members who might have pieces they inherited and are ready to part with. I've, I do go to all of the auctions and keep an eye out. And I work with not so much um, individuals outside of a family that's known to have had a relationship, but sometimes. Um, and then sometimes directly with the houses if it's current pieces. And um, I have tracked down retired in-house gemologists from different houses as well when I'm trying to find things. And all over the world, which is lots of fun. So pre-pandemic, India, uh, France, England, um, China, both mainland and Hong Kong, um, Italy, uh, Morocco, uh, Greece, Egypt, all over. Because oh, my God. Is it what about South America? Argentina? Oh, sure. And Brazil. I mean, we've got some absolutely Brazil's amazing houses. I lived in Argentina for um, a couple of years. Amazing. And actually, what I found amazing about Argentina is there's so many people are trying to are selling jewelry there. And you go to mm -hmm. some of the, there's an amazing shop next to the Alvear Hotel. Um, and they have incredible pieces for sale. Is there anything uh, about curating a collection of jewelry that you find? particularly kind of difficult have you been asked to find something that you know I mean you're, you're a little bit like a jewelry detective because I mean I, I try to find unique and special so probably the the most difficult is when somebody wants something that is you know was made one of a kind or you know in such a fragile material that it's very difficult to track down but that's what also makes it fun right is the hunt Oh so to start unpacking where these things have been. And I always enjoy it if I post something, for example, there are so many fantastic experts who also follow the page and interact that sometimes if I can't solve it, someone else I know will, you know, write me and we'll figure it out together. And I, I really like that collaborative aspect of it as well. But for my clients, what I'm trying to do is to take a little bit of the uncertainty and the fear out. So, you know, I want you to go into the idea of an auction. I will prepare all the comparables so you understand what's a reasonable number if I'm looking at a cashmere sapphire of a certain size. Yes. What I'm looking for? How do I understand it? How do I feel like I'm, I'm investing in something reasonably? And part of that has to be taken in the context of what is it for, right? Are we finding you an engagement ring? Right? You're going to wear it every day. Are you hard on your hands? That's a different decision and a different good decision 
uh, set of metrics than if we're looking for a representative stone from a house that is part of a collection that you intend to have, you know, displayed and because they complement each other artistically. So I'd love to know a little bit about some of the, because of course your private clients you can't talk about. Have you, do you ever bid for your clients? You want to take the emotion out of it, right? Part of why auctions succeed and are fun and drive prices out of control is that it appeals to that same dopamine fix as gambling. It's an addiction. So particularly if you get into a two-person battle, you can find yourself really fixating and spending too much. So one reason why you want to have an advisor bidding on your behalf is that we've agreed in advance, this is what makes sense to you. And it's not going to be emotional for me. I'm there to protect my client to do the best job for my client. And I also enjoy reading the room. So I, I think you and I talked about this um, yes. with my um IG Live with Benoit. So for me, you know, I will, I'll call my client and say, look, I can see who else is bidding. I think we need to move on to the next one because they've got very deep pockets. This person is going to lock in. I don't want you going over your limit. So things like that, where you want to really take yourself out of the emotional state and just say what makes sense. Because yes, there is an objective price, but you can get lucky. You know, there was that case at um, Sotheby's where a client was not available to on the phone to bid. So you might have had the most intimidating deep pockets client who would have stormed through and taken that lot. But the second bidder who would have been outbid got lucky. And yeah. that can always yeah. happen. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll make our little chess map going into it. So let's say we have five things we're bidding on. We have a total in mind. We have goals for each piece, but we've also assessed, you know, do you think you're in a heated competition? If we get into a head on head, where are we going to pull out? What makes sense? Because, you know, we can always come back. You don't want to overpay. This is amazing. I mean, it's so fascinating listening to how, how you talk because there's a real game and a talent to, to auctions, isn't there? They're you know, really fun. It is really fun. Is it really fun? I find it nerve-wracking. I bought an, a ring at auction. I mean, God, it wasn't like the kind of jewelry that you bought. It was the most beautiful, enormous, concise cocktail ring. And I love it so much. But I spent 200 quid more than I wanted to <laughs> because I wanted it. And in my mind, I had like top level but I didn't really adhere to it. And I think that happens much more often than not. And that's one of the reasons why you want to work with someone else to represent you. Mm -hmm. Because if it's yours, if it's your personal obsession, it's very difficult to catch yourself in the heat of the moment. It is. Don't do it often, right? So if this is the one auction and the one piece, you get in for the first time, you get excited and you just keep going. Yeah, it is right. so like gambling. I've never really thought about it like that. But yeah, it's so like gambling. Oh, it really is. And, you know, there's all kinds of strategies. I don't know if you remember, like at the beginning of eBay, you know, what I liked about eBay was that I could wait until the last three seconds and then pounce with a bid that no one saw coming. It was delightful. And I had triumph when I would win. <laughs> and then they, you know, God. when they created this rule that if you pounced at the end, it would 
extend the clock, livid. That was my favorite thing oh to my do. God, you are so amazing. You made me think of that amazing movie with Jessica Chastain. The high stake gambling woman. Mm. I can't. Oh, I know. It was such a good film. Mm-hmm. I love her. Okay. Anyway, you are. But they're also serious. It's an opportunity to yeah, experience historic pieces that we would never see outside of a museum. You can teach yourself all about jewels and gemology just by handling some of those pieces. It's, they're just treasures. You can really see incredible, incredible works. And that's the part I, I like the most. I know. I do find it kind of extraordinary that people don't teach jewelry. When they teach history of art, they don't teach jewelry because jewelry is has, is so much older than art, I think. I mean, people, well, people have been wearing, people have been wearing, it's, it, it, it's simultaneous, people have been wearing pieces of jewelry from the moment put a flower on their finger or they would put a bone around their neck to, you know, adornment is so old. And yet I think a lot of people, I feel when I say that I work in, you know, jewelry and I'm a jewelry store, people are like, oh yeah, she's got a kind of cushy job. <laughs> it's a little bit kind of like, you know, whatever. And I think, no, it's really, I find it really important that people realize and also the history that is around jewelry and, and particularly in Europe, you know, when you see paintings of, for example, Elizabeth the first wearing mm-hmm a ruby she didn't wear get that ruby from the uk she got it from and that was a trade route and if it wasn't for the picture of the of the ruby it it, it, it enables a lot of historians to kind of discover things about the world it's not just about someone wearing something pretty on their skin you know exactly and sometimes i think the fact that we have the utility of the pieces almost takes away from the acceptance of the works as art. And and that is quite unfortunate. I would recommend two works for people to read if they're interested in that subject. First, I would say is Stoned by Asia Radin. Oh, yes. Amazing. Jewelry as currency, jewelry as the cause of conflict, and jewelry throughout time. And then the other for the exact topic of jewelry as art is Coveted by Melanie Grant, which is out just last year. And yeah, it's absolutely I know. I've got that book. Too. I'm hopefully going to have Melanie here. Oh, good. You should. Yeah, she's brilliant. But I just want to have everyone on my podcast. Mm-hmm. I want it to literally go viral. Um, like everyone has a podcast. Anyway, um, I also want to talk about some of the museum collections that you've curated because mm-hmm. you have created collections for public um, collections, haven't mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. So with a, with a historic collection, um, you know, the, the intentions are, are quite clear. So, you know, my goal in putting together a collection for the public to interact with was to broaden the understanding of the audience and to be inclusive. So the idea was to represent high jewelry across the world, not just France and Italy, and also to give a language to the iconic elements. So if someone didn't grow up in an area near Graf, for example, you should be able to look at, you know, Graf as a representative with key iconic elements. You should be able to teach yourself so that if you go into a Graf, you will feel very comfortable. You know, my view on teaching in general is that we are trying to share information in a way that isn't intimidating. And jewelry, as you know, can be quite intimidating. So why does it have to be so scary? It doesn't, right? The idea is that you should be able to log on and thank gosh, you know, we have all of these. I I don't know how serious your viewers are, so I'll say gosh. Um, But you know that I actually swear they 
going to try to behave well. Um, but I think I was that, thinking how English you sound when you said gosh. Oh well. I said gosh a lot. You know, for you know, for the barrenness of seafood, I have to behave myself. We don't even need to explain it. One of those Easter eggs that we'll just plant in the talk. Did you make it to this point? Well, you've learned something new. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Um oysters on the half shell, anyone? Oh my god, I'm gonna have to have an like an oyster opening and having a surprise rather than an Easter egg. Oh, you really would do that for me? I think they should. I think it's warranted. Absolutely. By warrant, uh, by royal warrant of the Baroness. Let's do it. Fortunately, the CEO of Fabergé is a friend of mine. He worked at Graph with me. So I, I, I know he's going to be on the podcast in a few months. So you've just, I, 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 you've given me something to ask him. There is an oyster in. <laughs> now completely supposed to be answering because I went off on the seafood yeah. Uh, yeah, trend. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, um, you know, if you're if you're going online, in my view, and during COVID that I think one of the, you know, if there are any benefits in a horrible, horrible time for everyone globally, it has, I, I think, brought us much closer as a community online, right? I'm speaking to you right now from my home and your home, right? Mm-hmm. And in the past, I don't think we would have interacted as much you know, online. And so if you're going online with a publicly curated collection, my goal as the curator is that you should be able to access information in a very clear and very simple way. If I've done my job to understand iconic elements of each house represented and the time periods and to understand why and how they've influenced each other and why they're important, what's what's unusual, what's unique and special. So you know, if you are going on and you have a particular fascination with the Art Deco or you are you know, really interested to know more about the House of Verdura, right? You should be oh, able to. Verdura, yeah. So fun, right? You should be able to see the elements, to have explanations, to have clear and easy ways to understand the gemstones that are featured, the techniques that are featured. And then my personal favorite, which is to highlight the craftsmen and the workshops, because those are the people who are actually creating that we enjoy. I know. I I remember showing journalists around the workshops. I mean, it's unbelievable what these men do. And they are men. They were all men who were working in the basement. And it was so incredible. I mean, and they've been doing this for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And some of them, their fathers have been doing it before them and their kids were going to do it after them. And it's a real... It, it's a real career. I mean, you know, we. I think nowadays careers have changed so much. You know, you don't go in necessarily after university and you're a, whatever for the rest of your life. You know, you chop and change. Whereas a lot of these master setters uh, or cutters, they really do do it for their lives and they their kids do it and it goes on and it's generational. Um, and yeah, it's an amazing, it is an amazing world. I will say Verdura, since we were speaking about Verdura, actually has some very senior women on the manufacturing side. So Sharon, you started a complimentary Zoom gem school for kids during COVID. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Because that's yeah. so, I, I bought from Amazon for my kids. I bought like this kind of like rock school. And of course my kids lost the stones within seconds and they thought that they were kind of pieces of gravel. I mean, obviously they, they cost me 30 pounds. So it wasn't, you know, breaking the bank, but I kind of wish I put that towards a piece of jewelry, <laughs> you know, and the map, 
which which talked to me about you know was kind of ripped up and cut out within seconds so I'm glad that you're doing yours over zoom can you tell me your your gem- gemology school for kids sure so um one of the the most common comments I hear from adults is, oh, I didn't know that a job like designer for a high jewelry house existed, or I didn't know it was possible for me to work at a Cartier. I didn't even know how to get there, what the path was. And out of the um, conversation I had with Constance White, who was the former editor of Essence Magazine, and Darlene Gillard, who was her fashion director, um, right after the Black Lives Matter movement started, we got into this conversation about access and information. And one of the things that I thought about is, you know, at about age nine or 10, we're all exactly the same, wide open, excited to learn, excited for information. And so one of the things that I could address with a group of colleagues from the houses who've been very generous in volunteering their time is to present options to children. So I selected schools that were racially and economically diverse with the idea being that you can talk to an actual designer from Boucheron. You can talk to someone who works in the retail innovation lab at Cartier. You can talk to someone from Sotheby's and they will tell you This is my path to how I got this job. This is what my day looks like so that you have a concept of, you know, this is open to me. Do you like working with your hands? Do you like drawing? You might want to be a designer. Are you interested in putting things together? Let's talk about the manufacturing side and the workshops. Are you interested in distribution? But to just give a sense of the full supply chain and the opportunities available, and then on a more practical level, you know, what do you need to be doing? How do you get an internship? How do you think about what to be studying in high school and beyond? What did these people do so that you can at least pick? Because part of it is just having that knowledge, right? And so the idea is let's talk about what we all like. And one of them, for example, um, we did in Richmond, California, 70% of the school is um, Latinx, the rest are African-American and um, Native American indigenous. And the majority of the school is below the poverty line. And um, the teachers said, look, you know, we can't guarantee you how many kids are going to be on because, you know, they're facing a lot of hardship, which, you know, we were all aware of and expecting. And it turns out there were over 200 kids on the call. And I put up. That makes me so thrilled and happy. Everyone, we're all the same. We all love to learn. We all love beautiful things. And diamonds and 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 gemstones are everyone, you know, just because the earth throws them up for no one in particular. It doesn't know who's going to get it, you know? I agree with you. And I think, you know, I, I had all kinds of, you know, ideas about how the talks should go. And I put up a big yellow stone thinking we would spend quite a few minutes guessing what it was. And um, the first kid who put his hand up said, that's a yellow sapphire. And I was like, <gasps> well, it actually is. Gosh, that's <laughs> incredible. Well, did he, did he have a mom with a yellow sapphire? <laughs> well, another kid immediately identified a tanzanite, which I never saw coming. And it turns out that they play a video game called Minecraft and apparently had uh... seen And, you know, I think, why can't we 
bridge all of these different avenues of information. There's nothing wrong with learning about Tanzanites from a video game and then finding out that you can make a career handling these beautiful gemstones, that it is available to anyone who's driven. And we'd like to make sure those opportunities are open to everyone. And so it's been a lot of fun and really rewarding. And I hope to keep going as long as the schools will have us. I think it's wonderful. I want you to bring it here. I, I mean, I hated geology at school. And I always thought that now that if I'd known what comes out of the earth rather than just kind of dirt and fossils, I know people love fossils, but I didn't. Um, and I live on the Jurassic Coast. I would be, I've been far more fascinated by geology at school if I knew that diamonds and sapphires and rubies and emeralds and tanzanites and aquamarines and everything is natural. Anything technical at an intro level comes down to the quality of the teaching. You can make it sound really boring and you can make it sound fun if you put the effort in. So I always try to to take out the intimidating parts of it and to make it more fun using, you know, examples that people can really enjoy. And like you said, everybody loves beautiful things, right? You can put up a wonderful stone and we all have thoughts about it and can interact with it and enjoy it. You know, it's it's not that dissimilar to what I was doing as a faculty member also, because, I mean, operations management is basically applied math. If you're not very good at teaching, it can be like watching paint peel, just absolute torture. Oh, it's and, horrible. Uh, I've had terrible teachers. Well, you can make it a lot of fun. I mean, I, I did examples with a, a hip hop group called the Wu-Tang Clan for my classes because I oh, just thought. Amazing. Can you come here? Can you just <laughs> jump over the pond? Come on, British Airways is now open. Just jump on a plane, come here, and I'll, I'll give you some schools to talk to. <laughs> Look, I, I just think, you know, you should start with the idea that if the, if the professor is having a good time, you're going to have a good time, right? If you see somebody laughing and enjoying themselves, you're not going to be that cross, and it's not going to be as boring. So just trying to think about, you know, we're going to get to something fabulous down the road. So can we use those examples up front to at least motivate it? And so, like you said, if you knew geology could also bring you to rubies, you'd have a lot more fun, right? Than when we start with the temperature in the crust of the earth and you fall asleep. So I think, you know, that, that to me is what I'm trying to do with my clients, what I'm trying to do with my Instagram and what I'm trying to do with the Zoom School for Children. It's all the same. I don't think that high jewelry should be intimidating. I don't think that is for a select group of people. I think it should be available to anyone who has a love of jewelry. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I've always thought that. I thought, you know, we can go to the Louvre and we can see the Mona Lisa. But, you know, you would never walk into a jewelry store and see a beautiful, because you'd be nervous as a kid. You wouldn't go unless your mom wears it. Unless your mom wears it. And I don't want people to feel that way. So the things that I'd like to remove from the vocabulary, I hate, oh, I would be afraid to wear that. Why? Diamond's the hardest substance on earth. Unless you are a total idiot, it's really unlikely you're going to do anything to it. Why not have it? And I don't agree with the approach of gloves and not allowing food. So, you know, if this diamond made it for 3.5 billion years, I think I can wipe off your fingerprints. Have a cocktail, put your hands on I'm not going to worry about that. I don't worry about that. Now, that said, I will say there are obviously stones that are more delicate. And part of what I do with my clients is to advise them, you know, based on your lifestyle, let's make choices that make sense for you. So if you think you're going to be wearing your engagement ring to do hot yoga, no, no, you're not going to. 
because you're going to warp it. And I don't care what it's made out of. Platinum's going to warp too. So please don't. If you take away anything from this podcast, please don't do hot yoga with your rings on. Please don't. Your hands are swelling. You're putting I your. Love the fact that you think that my, my listeners uh, have to do hot yoga. I love it. <laughs> I used to do hot yoga in Buenos Aires, and then I would come out, and it would be even hotter. <laughs> <laughs> as long um, as you do it without wearing your jewelry, I'm very happy with you. Take the ring. I probably wore my graph earrings. Oh no no no! no they're no. tiny. No no. Why why do we need to do well, my that? ears? Don't sweat. Or do they? Yes, they do. Okay. Okay. Well, should we end it there then? <laughs> yeah, but with my Instagram also, you know, I, I don't, I, I definitely agree out. So, you know, during the magnificent jewel sales, I will try to present some of the research that I do going into an auction to share with other people who may not you know, be using an advisor, but might benefit from the I think what you do is fascinating. And I think that yeah, people like you and people like Melanie who on Instagram who make it so much more available and so much more kind of um, accessible. You don't have to buy a piece of jewelry to love it and to, and, and, and to kind of want to know more about it. And I think that uh, for a very long time, there have been brands, not least the one I used to work for, who have no interest in people who don't want to buy the, their jewels. They don't want it. They don't want. And I think that that's not right. I think this is what's so wonderful about big auction houses is that they are very open to people. They open up the doors for the sales. Anyone, pretty much anyone can go and have a look. Can't anyone can go in. And so, yeah. you know, it is a And I think it's, it's like an art gallery, you know. We didn't go to the National Gallery. We don't go to the Smithsonian thinking, oh, we're going to be able to buy the Lisa, but we can at least be allowed to look at it. And mm-hmm. I think that that is what jewelry has got to be. And I think that, you know, there are... I think there needs to be more museums with jewels in them. The Louvre is amazing. I mean, the, the Galerie d'Apollon is incredible. And you think, God, those jewels, like the most famous queen in the world wore them, Marie Antoinette. And the Tower of London, you know. But I think, I, I, I wish it was, I wish people understood more about it. Okay. And so I think with the big houses, it's not that they don't welcome people in. I think they do. It's what does it Some take? Of them do. Someone, Some of them I, do. I think they do. I okay. would say, what does it take for someone coming in to project comfort and confidence? Because what you are signaling when you're comfortable and confident is that I belong here. And that's all you need, right? So yes. information, I view is enough to get anybody over the hurdle. If you know all of the iconic collections of Cartier and you've spent time looking at the pieces, when you walk into a Cartier, you're going to walk in very comfortably because you know what you're looking at. You've seen it. Your body language will project that. And again, that's what I want for everyone, which is whether or not you grew up near Cartier, I want you to know enough about the house, about the history, about the pieces that you walk in feeling very comfortable and happy. And I, you know, I, I choose to believe that we can get to a place where everybody feels very welcomed and very comfortable because jewelry should be available to everyone. And I don't think high jewelry, you know, is for a select few. Mm. I can tell you one thing I'm working on as of this morning, if you'd like. Yes. 
So I have um, clients from Los Angeles who are engaged and they are looking for their perfect ring. And it is involving a design house that just did spectacularly well at the Magnificent Jewelry Sales and something completely bespoke and really fascinating. So we're coordinating the stone, the house, the designer, and the couple and their preferences. So just really, really interesting bringing everyone together and for a very happy reason. Now, this one's unusual because they have a very short timeline. So he will be surprising her. And so he's got a very firm date in mind. So part of our decision-making will be based on, you know, what makes sense given the time constraints. So lots of fun things in play. They have a very good sense of history and the houses they like. They have a very strong color palette. We have, you know, time restrictions, and we also have all these wonderful people involved. So lots of fun stuff. Yeah. Well, congratulations on this amazing contract. It sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, this was fun. Sadly, I've got to end it there because I've got to go and get my Matilda. Thank you so much, Dr. Novak, for coming out. We had prison cards together.